Hey there, folks. This is Chris. I'm adding this brief little addendum to this episode. A few days ago, it came to my attention that one of my longtime fans, Randall Fulton, has gotten into some serious financial trouble because of a string of medical disasters that afflicted him and his family. If you're on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group, you may know Randall because of his amazing fan art that he did of Abby Preston, Abby and Victor, Catherine Catane. He's done some really cool stuff that has contributed to the world of Metamore City. And I'd just like for all of us to chip in and help him out. He only needs to raise about another $500 in order to get out of his immediate trouble. So if you can give a donation, just a few dollars even, that would go a long way to help if everybody who listens to this podcast would chip in. You need to go to www.gofundme.com slash helprandallfund. That's R-A-N-D-A-L-L. Again, gofundme.com slash helprandallfund. Thanks again, and here is your episode. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 17. Hi folks, welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, and I've got a little bit of a cold this week. I don't know if you can tell or not, but I'm going to go ahead and push through. I've got my cup of throat coat tea here, and I'm ready to read you guys the next piece of this story. So let's get on with it, shall we? Today I'm bringing you part two of the short Metamore City novel called The Three Graces. In part one, we encountered Nathan and Amelie Grace, telling the story of how they met and fell in love. Both were members of the cursed community of Theriomorphs, in their case, fated to wear the form of a humanoid vampire bat. Both belonged to distant branches of the same family tree, which had lived in Metamore Valley for centuries. However, Amelie is a young noblewoman of House Anduin, while Nathan comes from a line of commoners marked by struggle, poverty, and loss. Nathan won a scholarship to the prestigious Chisholm University, the same university that Amelie is attending, but it was the relationship he formed with Amelie there that would prove to be his real ticket out of poverty. Amelie excelled at making connections and then making the most of them, so when Nathan took an introductory job at a powerful corporate law firm, she quickly looked for the best way to promote Nathan's success there. Eventually, she found it. Nearly all of the firm's senior partners were active in the Church of Eternal Brotherhood. Neither Amelie nor Nathan was religious, but Amelie saw the Church as a way to plug themselves into a culture that Nathan's bosses valued. So, despite Nathan's own reservations, he packed up their infant daughter Natalie and went off to church with his wife. The Three Graces a novel of Metamore City by Chris Lester Part 2 8. Amelie The local chapter of the Church of Eternal Brotherhood was on the third Skyway level, not far from the offices of Jenkins, Sawyer, and Roche. 
The first thing that struck me was how beautiful it was. The facade was made of dark grey stone, which swept upward in magnificent pointed arches all the way to the fourth skyway. A large circular stained-glass window stood prominently above three pairs of doors of polished cherry wood. The holy symbol of the church, a golden chalice marked with the ankh of eternal life, could be clearly seen in that window, illuminated by spot-lamps inside. The building bore hundreds of smaller elegant touches as well, from the gargoyles over the doors to the gold-plated door-handles carved in the shapes of twisting vines. Ushers greeted us at the door, men and women in finely tailored charcoal suits with black ties and wine-red dress shirts. Each bore a small enameled pin with the ankh and chalice. They shook our hands warmly and welcomed us inside. I went first, my husband carrying Natalie close behind. I must admit, I had been insatiably curious about the place since I had first discovered that hidden bond between Nathan's employers— Given the sober, elegant beauty of the exterior, I had wanted very much to see what lay within. The sanctuary exceeded my expectations. Those pointed arches out front were matched by a vaulted chamber of staggering size. Two rows of columns lined the centre of the sanctuary, with two shorter lines of columns further out, creating a vast open space where the ceiling seemed to float overhead like the vault of heaven. There were candles everywhere— in the chandeliers, in candelabras on the altar, in small alcoves along each row of pews, and at the outer perimeter of the sanctuary. Outside the city still buzzed with traffic, as it always did, but here a quiet stillness held sway. The only sounds were the soft ambiance of gentle organ music, and the hushed voices of parishioners, greeting each other and conversing in small groups. I had never been anywhere like it before. I had heard tell of Ecclesiastes cathedrals this fine, but I had never been inside one. My house had been practitioners of the old religion, and since the gods had fallen, most of us had not practiced much of anything. But in that place I felt something I had not felt since I was a child, true and sincere awe. The organ music subsided, and chimes rang out three times through the sanctuary. Conversation stopped, and the congregation quietly took their seats. Nathan lingered near one of the pews in the back row, but I gestured forward toward the altar and the podium behind it. I want to see, I whispered. Nathan's ears flicked back in irritation, but he nodded, acquiescing. I chose a pew a little more than halfway to the front and sat beside the center aisle. The chimes rang again. Two acolytes came down the aisle dressed in crimson robes and veils, carrying golden censers that gave off an earthy, woodsy scent. They placed the censers at the front corners of the altar, then took their seats in silence. Next came a junior priest, his robe satin black trimmed with red. He carried a large golden chalice held at eye level before him. He set down the chalice in the center of the altar, then filled it with dark red wine from a flagon that stood on a nearby table. Then the priest, too, took his seat. The organ started up again then, a melody that I did not know, but which seemed to strike a chord within me. The congregation rose to their feet, and I did likewise. I looked around, waiting to see what would happen. At the back of the sanctuary, head priestess Elura emerged. I had never seen her before. I only knew her name from the program the ushers had given me, 
but she could be mistaken for nothing else. Voluminous ropes of elegant black, a crimson stole with gold tassels and trim, and a ruby-encrusted tiara that framed her proud angular face in glittering contrast to her long black hair. She carried a golden ankh before her in both hands, a massive holy symbol, some forty centimeters tall and twenty wide at the crossbar. She moved with stately majesty down the aisle, and each row of parishioners knelt as she passed them. I did likewise without a second thought. Priestess Allura climbed the steps beside the altar and came to a stop behind the podium, where she placed the ankh atop it for all to see. She stretched out her hands in welcome as she slowly turned her head this way and that to take in the crowd. "'Welcome, brothers and sisters,' she said. Her voice was strong and clear, full of authority. I found myself leaning forward, hanging on her every word. "'We gather together this night to honor and celebrate the divine mystery of the blood,' she said. "'The blood is the life,' the congregation said in unison." The blood within each one of us binds us one to another, said Allura, joining our hearts in eternal communion, said the congregation. Let us rise and sing in praise to the divine mystery, the head priestess said. The congregation rose to their feet as the organist began to play, the same melody they had been playing earlier, the one that I had felt I almost knew. The words of the hymn appeared in the air above the altar, an illusionist's figment of glowing letters. O holy giver of all life, your memory now we praise, for through our toils and our strife it guideth all our days. For blood you gave to fill our hearts, to bring us warmth and love. It joins the low and humble ones to glories high above. I did not understand everything I heard that night, what I did comprehend felt right and meaningful. The interconnectedness of all things, the gifts of love, warmth, and life, symbolized by the blood, bestowed by the Creator in its self-sacrifice to make the universe. The idea that a perfect order to the universe was possible, that what was broken could be made whole again. Priestess Allura spoke with eloquence and with passion, and whenever her eyes turned in my direction, I was utterly captured by them, unable to look away. This woman had power, power of a kind I had scarcely imagined, and she used that power to spread this message of hope, of brotherhood, of restoration. After the sermon, the priestess stood before the altar and raised the chalice high. This wine is the symbol of the blood that flows in every heart, she said. By partaking of this cup, we proclaim our oneness in the divine mystery and our submission to the perfect order that is coming into the world. Her eyes turned on me. If you are a visitor here among us, we ask that you observe, but do not partake of the cup. You are under no obligation, but if you wish, you may come forward with the faithful and kneel at the altar to receive a blessing. The ushers began moving slowly down the aisle releasing one row at a time to go down to the altar. Each parishioner knelt before Priestess Allura and said something. After saying something else in return, she raised the cup to their lips and let them drink, after which they rose and proceeded off to the right side aisle to return to their seat. The organist continued to play throughout, covering the sound of the priestess's exchange with her believers. 
When the ushers came to my row, I immediately rose and joined the line approaching the altar. I did not know if Nathan would follow me. I did not care. I only knew that something powerful was happening, and that I hungered to be part of it. As I drew closer to the altar, I could hear what the faithful were saying. In humility I submit to the leading of the blood, said each one in turn. Then receive this gift, the abundance of the sacred mystery, the priestess said, and lifted the cup for them to drink. The litany repeated itself five times in my hearing. When at last I stood before the priestess, I realized that I did not know what to say. Elora smiled. Her dark, glittering eyes felt like endless depths that I could fall into. Do you wish to receive a blessing, seeker? she asked. I... I do, I said. My thin, high voice sounded even higher and thinner than usual. Then kneel and bow your head, she said. I did so. A moment later I felt her hand on the back of my head, her long fingernails scraping lightly through my fur to run over my scalp. The feeling sent a delicious chill through me. May your life be filled with warmth and love, Elora said. May the blood within you awaken to see itself in all others. May you feel the leading of the divine mystery, and may it bring you to that which you are called to become. Let it be. Let it be, I whispered. Her hand found my chin and raised it, until her gaze caught my eyes again. Go with the blessing of this house, she said, and return to us to know yourself more fully. My heart thrilled at the priestess's welcome. I will, I said. Then she gestured for me to move on, and I did so, though I kept looking back over my shoulder at her. When I returned to my pew, I saw Nathan watching me with a strange expression. What's wrong? I whispered, as I slid into the spot beside him. He eyed me, opened his mouth to speak, then closed it again. He nodded toward the exit, his meaning plain. We'll talk later. That suited me fine. I turned my attention back to the service, and the long line of people waiting for their turn to kneel before the altar. 9. Nathan I left the church service as soon as it ended, taking Natalie with me. I was amazed that she had stayed quiet through the entire service, and I didn't want to tempt fate by keeping her in there any longer than I had to. Amelie lingered inside. She said she needed to ask a question of one of the priests. I waited on a park bench outside, taking deep breaths of the cool night air. She came out ten or fifteen minutes later, and together we walked back to our skimmer. "'Are you all right, darling?' Amelie asked me. "'Oh, I'm fine,' I said, keeping my eyes straight ahead. "'Just needed some fresh air. It got a little stuffy in there with all the incense.' Amelie waved a hand as if to say, I'll give you that one. Even so, that was amazing. I can't wait to go back. I studied her out of the corner of my eye, hoping I might see some trace of irony, a curled lip or eyes sparkling with humor. There was a light in her eyes, all right, but it had nothing to do with irony. That was the wide-eyed look of a believer. I thought we were doing this for the social connections. I said carefully. Amelie threw back her head and laughed. <laughs> that was my idea, wasn't it? Gods, I hadn't the faintest notion. 
I feel like a child who went hunting dragons and caught one by the tail. I wasn't sure what to say to that, so I just kept walking. She noticed. I felt her hand on my elbow a moment later. What's wrong, love? Her tone was gentle, searching. I looked down at her, at that fervent light in her eyes. I don't know. I just... All that talk about blood gives me the creeps. Amelie's lip quirked. I'm savoring the irony of that statement coming from a vampire bat. I looked away so I wouldn't glare at her. I'm serious. All the rituals, that chalice, the singing about blood. It's so morbid. You know it's just a metaphor, right, dear? When they talk about the blood, they don't mean it literally. It's a symbol. Are you sure about that? I asked, trying not to sound angry. You know the rumors that go around about that church. They say it's controlled by vampires. Amelie clucked her tongue. And they used to accuse the Ecclesia of cannibalism because of their communion rite. People will always make up outlandish stories about religions they don't understand. Did you understand what we just saw in there? Because to me it seemed like a lot of show and not a lot of substance. Amelie stopped walking. I turned and looked at her. Her face was as serious as a funeral. Nathan, I don't know how to put into words what just happened to me. Her voice was soft but intense. But it was important. I can't explain why. I felt something, a power like nothing I've experienced. There is something real here. I need to know more. Her chin lifted, and her eyes took on a stubborn glint. And I need you to be supportive. Meaning what, exactly? Give it a fair chance. You didn't feel what I did. That's fine. With something as personal as religion, no two people will experience it in the same way. But I need to have the freedom to explore this without you judging me or treating me like a fool. She nodded in the general direction of the law office. Besides, you owe it to your career to at least try to understand it. That part hasn't changed. I closed my eyes and sighed. The idea of putting on a pious face to score points with the bosses suddenly seemed a lot less appealing. But Amelie was right. My career was in a holding pattern, and the Church of Eternal Brotherhood might be the key to getting it rising again. But there was one thing more important than all of that. I loved my wife. And she had experienced some kind of profound, life-changing moment in that church. Not many of us ever get a moment like that. And now that she'd had one, I wasn't going to be the asshole who tore it apart or tried to take it away from her. So I opened my eyes, reached out with my free hand, and took hers. I gave her a smile I didn't feel. Okay, hon, I said. Whatever I feel or don't feel, I'll have your back on this. We're still a team. She beamed at me, giving my hand a tight squeeze. Always, she said. Ten. Natalie. I can't think about growing up without thinking about church. Seriously. And yeah, I know that's a strange idea for a lot of people. They think of church and they remember boring Sunday school lessons or stern teachers or sometimes nothing at all. For a lot of them, church was an occasional nuisance, something they did when their parents felt like it was necessary for some rite of passage 
or to appease the grandparents or whatever. Their childhood memories are defined by their schools, their summer vacations, their first crushes, maybe a club or a band or a team. Me? I lived church. My elementary school? Church run. My after-school programs? Church organized. My friends? Children of other church people. Music, books, and other media? Church approved. And when I tested positive for majory and I had to start taking magic classes? You guessed it. The church had a program for that, too. From the time I was born until the year I turned 16, the Church of Eternal Brotherhood defined all the parameters of my life. I tell some people about it now, and they can't even believe it. How could you stand it, they ask. You missed out on so much. But see, that's the thing. The goldfish doesn't know she's missing out on a whole world outside the fishbowl. For her, the fishbowl is the world. I owed my particular fishbowl to my mom. For the first few years I can remember, she worked for the church on their outreach programs, organizing blood drives, needle exchanges, vaccination campaigns, stuff like that. I didn't understand all of it when I was that little, of course, but I knew she worked hard to help people, especially poor people who got sick. She taught me that it was important to help everyone who needed it, because everybody had the blood inside them. That meant they were all our brothers and sisters, even if they didn't realize it. A few years later, I guess I must have been like eight or nine, Mom became an acolyte. That's a kind of priest in training, and it was a really big deal for our family. Some of my aunts and uncles came to watch the ceremony, the ones from Mom's side who were really stinking rich and spent most of the time pretending we didn't exist. Grandma and Grandpa Grace didn't come, though. I think now they must have thought it was a bad idea. At the time, I didn't know what to think. But Mom looked so happy in her new bright red robes, and Priestess Alora said we should be very proud of her, so I was. It takes a long time to become a priestess. Mom's schooling lasted for four years, and then she had another two years of in-service training after that. I know six years isn't all that much, compared to how long people live, but for a kid? That's forever. That's like half your childhood. For me, it was the half when I was growing faster than the boys, and my body was doing weird things, and I really, really wished that my mom didn't have to worry about her own homework all the time so she could just talk to me. You know, about girl stuff. And if you think being a normal girl of 12 or 13 is bad, try being a theriomorph. Try being an ugly theriomorph. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Vampire bats are ugly. We really, really are. If I could have chosen not to take the curse, believe me, I wouldn't look like this. But Dad and Mom had to marry one of their own kind, so of course I was born with their curse instead of being able to choose for myself. And that meant I had to go through all the horrible things girls usually go through, and do it with a face like a freaking nightmare. It took me a long, long time to get over that, to start to accept myself for the person I was on the inside, and not this travesty I was made into by some ancient long-dead wizard. Maybe I'll never really be over it. I guess you can tell I've got some issues. Anyway, that was my childhood. Church-flavored everything. Mom getting more and more distant as she got more and more religious, learning to live with looking like a monster. And then there was me and my dad, Thank all the gods for my dad. Without him, I think I would have gone crazy. Well, 
crazier. Eleven. Nathan. I honestly think that Natalie saved my life. Things were never the same after Amelie walked into that church for the first time. You hear people talk about spiritual rebirth, and you might think it's an overblown metaphor, but it's not. My wife walked into that church, and she walked out a different person. It just took us a long time to realize how different. To her credit, not all the changes were bad. Amelie had always had a tendency to be self-centered and elitist, which I suppose is par for the course when you grow up nobility. As an acolyte, she had to learn humility and obedience, and the doctrines of the CEB taught her that all people were members of the same family, which made her stop obsessing so much about associating with people of good breeding. She used to assume that people from noble houses were inherently more qualified for positions of leadership than commoners were. The church forced her to question those assumptions— since most of its leaders were not of noble blood. But that doesn't mean that Amelie became an egalitarian. The Church of Eternal Brotherhood believes strongly in order and hierarchy, and you can't be a faithful member of the Church without being in submission to the people above you. And that's where she and I really started to clash. "'Natalie, darling,' Amelie said one night over dinner, "'I have some exciting news. Priestess Allura is ready to take on a new attendant.' She requested you specifically. Natalie put down her fork, glancing over at me. Why me? she asked. You're smart, you're studious, you're respectful, and you know the liturgy as well as anyone in the church. Elora thinks you have great potential and that it must be nurtured. Natalie bit her bottom lip. Mom, I mean that's cool, it's flattering, but I'm already really busy. I have my honors classes in the poetry club and my studies for Wizard Guild, plus all the stuff I'm already doing for youth group. Well, I'm sure we can cut back on some of that, Amelie said, waving a hand. This is an opportunity to directly serve the head priestess. How many people ever receive such an honor? Natalie looked down at her plate and said nothing. I could see the tension in her neck and shoulders, and her ears were twitching like they wanted to lay back against her head. Well, nothing needs to be decided yet, I said. Natalie at least needs to finish out the school year and complete her novitiate's exams for the guild. In the meantime, maybe she can talk to some of the past attendants, get a feel for what it would be like. I turned to Natalie. You need to complete some kind of community service before graduation, of course, but there are lots of ways to do that. Nobody's going to force you into anything, all right? Natalie smiled a little, the tension easing out of her shoulders. All right. Thanks, Dad. I smiled back at her. I did not look at my wife, glaring daggers at me from the other side of the table. Amelie was too well-mannered to start a fight at the dinner table, a fact I had been counting on, but once we were in our bedroom for the night, she let me have it. What were you thinking, Nathan? she demanded. We can't just let Natalie refuse to be Alora's attendant. She is our head priestess. She's your head priestess. I snapped, and if you want to be your personal slave, that's your prerogative, but don't try to force your dreams on our daughter. Amelie looked affronted. You think this is about me? About what I want? This is about serving the divine mystery. Natalie has to learn submission. Natalie already bends over backwards to make you happy, I shot back. 
Look at everything she already does for the church. You think that's about what she wants? She's been trying to get you to pay attention to her for years, and you've just told her that the price of your approval is giving up everything in her life that matters to her. Don't be absurd, Amelie said, her voice thick with scorn. I love Natalie with all my heart. I would give my life for her. I shook my head, feeling the heat of my anger draining away, until all that was left was weariness. You say that, I said. I'm sure on some level you believe it. But so far the only thing we see you giving your heart to is the church. Doesn't seem like there's much room in there for me and Natalie anymore. I turned and walked to the door. I'll sleep in the guest room tonight. Nathan. I left before she could say anything else. Natalie found me sitting on the bed in the guest room, staring at the wall. Dad? I wiped my eyes and waved to her. Come in, Kit. She stepped inside and shut the door behind her. Did you and Mom have a fight? I nodded. Yeah. About me? I dug my claws into the bed sheets. It's not your fault, Nat. You didn't do anything wrong. Okay. Natalie sat down on the bed beside me and leaned into my shoulder. I put my arm around her and held her there. I don't want to be Priestess Allura's attendant, she said softly. You know Marjorie Cavendish? I thought about the other young people I knew at the church, trying to place the name. Um, brown-haired, pale, kind of short. A few years older than you, right? Yeah, Natalie said. She was Allura's attendant until a couple months ago, but I knew her from before. When Allura picked her, she... changed. Changed how? Well, she was always spiritual, but she used to be fun, too. Funny and goofy and sarcastic. She told some jokes that made the youth leader's faces turn red. But the longer she worked with Allura... She wrapped her arms around herself as if she were trying to ward off the cold. All of that just... drained away. Like... She didn't think about anything except serving Allura. Her voice dropped to a whisper. I think Allura controlled her mind. Is she a spooky? I thought about it, then shook my head. I don't think so, no. I've never heard of a telepath in the Church of Eternal Brotherhood. But I don't think you're wrong when you say she controlled Marjorie's mind, either. Natalie looked up at me her dark eyes wet with tears. Church is getting scary, Daddy. Do we have to keep going? I considered that. The more Amelie's star had risen in the church, the more opportunities I was given at work. Jenkins, Sawyer, and Roche was a very devout law firm. I know, it seems like a contradiction in terms, but there you have it. The senior partners had noticed me and Amelie through our participation in the work of the church, and because of that I was getting cases now. Real cases, the kind that actually go to oral arguments, instead of being settled out of court or decided by summary judgment. We were financially stable for the first time since we'd gotten married, and while we were by no means rich, my student loans were getting paid off, and Natalie was getting the education she deserved. And all of that would disappear overnight, I was sure, if Natalie and I left the church. We have to keep going for now, I said. 
but you don't have to do anything you aren't comfortable with. If anyone, anyone, tries to tell you differently, or if they try to pressure you into something that doesn't feel right, you get out of there and you come straight for me. Got it? Natalie wriggled over and buried her head in my chest. Got it. I held her there for a long time. At last, she said, Daddy? Yes, Kit? Can I stay here with you tonight? If Mom is mad at me... She didn't finish the thought. Honestly, there was no way she could have finished it that wouldn't have broken my heart. Of course, honey. I lay back on the guest bed, and Natalie snuggled up next to me. She was asleep in less than two minutes. Me? I lay staring into the darkness for a lot longer. Next week's episode, Amelie is desperate to bring Nathan and Natalie back into the fold, and Priestess Allura has an idea for how to make it happen. But what will it cost Amelie to go down that road? Find out in episode 18. Some people say that writing like a pro is harder work than digging ditches. Maybe, but could I dig a ditch with this cat on my lap? Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,855 words this week, over the course of 6.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 747 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 102 days without breaking my chain. In the month of August 2015, I wrote a grand total of 22,961 words, averaging 741 words per day over 31 days. I spent 30.25 hours writing, or just slightly less than 7 hours a week. Compared to July, I spent 32% more time writing, and wrote 16% more words. That means my writing efficiency dropped, but I also spent a good chunk of August slogging through the difficult middle section of the Three Graces, so that's not really surprising. This week I finished the first draft of my science fiction story, Last Sunset at the Golden Gate. It came out to a little over 5,000 words, so it's a pretty good size for a one-shot episode. The story is now in the hands of the beta readers. I'm trying to decide if the story has too much sex to be a mainstream science fiction story, or too little sex to be a science fiction erotica story, so I can figure out how best to market it. Hopefully my beta readers will have some good ideas. After finishing Last Sunset... I went back to work on another standalone short story, which I started writing way back in September of 2010. This story is called Maternal Instinct, and it's another venture into a genre I haven't written in before. That's about as much as I can tell you without giving anything away. 
I started out by rereading what I had already written and doing some outlining about character motivations and where the story might go. It turned out to be very helpful, and I have a much better idea of how to write this story than I did when I first attempted it five years ago. Here's hoping I can pull it off. Now, let's get to some feedback. Adam Schmidt writes, Hey Chris, great to know that you are in fact still podcasting. I'm slowly making my way through To Walk in Shadow. It's so cool to dive back into this world after such a long hiatus from listening. I gotta hand it to you. Your writing style did in fact help improve my own. My description of characters and occasionally places have grown much more elaborate and detailed. So far I've been writing like a madman, though I am mostly editing now and working on promoting my book which released a month ago. D-Inject, Second Birthday is the title. But hey, I love your work, and I'd love to write some Metamore stories of my own. It's such a rich world, and I'm curious to see what I'd be able to do with such a great setting. Keep doing what you're doing, because it is freaking awesome. Unquote. Thanks, Adam. You are more than welcome to write your own Metamore City stories. I can't guarantee that they'll be accepted as canon, but it's happened before. Heck, Nobilis Reed has a whole book full of his own Metamore City stories, all of which got the Chris Lester seal of approval. Why not pitch your story idea on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook page? I'm sure you could get helpful feedback there from your fellow Metamorphs. Best of luck, and keep writing. Craig Button sent in this message. That's the end of our story, folks. But is it? The best stories stick with you and keep making you think. I'm sitting there thinking about times in my past that weren't what I thought they were, and the times that fate seemed to take pleasure in going na at me. Your Metamore stories were the first stories that showed that there was more to fiction and literature than the big New York publishing houses and the standard authors. I had been drinking the Kool-Aid and pretty much was reading what Barnes & Noble brought me. The best stories make you think— And even if you can't say, I didn't see that coming, they lead you along, waiting for the next turn. The religious themes that you weave into the stories always make me think, and the conflicts are easy to apply to our world. The characters have nuances I enjoy, Artax and Janus, as well as the more central characters. For me, the cuckoo shows that even though they may not be human, your characters are very human. The Cuckoo is also a good example of the difference between porn and erotica. It was very erotic and left enough to the imagination for it to definitely not be porn. Glad we were all able to help you get back online. I'm looking forward to the future, and thanks for an exciting universe. Unquote. Thanks, Craig. I'm glad you're digging my characters, both the protagonists and the supporting cast. I like to think that all of them have layers that make them interesting. As for the difference between porn and erotica, I think Nobilis Reed said it best. Erotica is the story about sex that I still want to keep reading after I've gotten off. The Cuckoo isn't about sex, per se, but it definitely has erotic elements, as do a lot of my stories. Sex is an important part of how people interact with the world, and the way a character approaches sex tells us a lot about them as a person. For more on this topic, check out the three-part Sex Roundtable podcast that I recorded with J. Daniel Sawyer and Philippa Ballantyne. You could find it in the special episode section of the Metamore City Podcast archives. The link will be in the show notes. 
I'm excited to report that we have our first iTunes review for The Raven and the Writing Desk. Sarah Testarossa gave the show five stars and writes, If you like speculative fiction slash sci-fi slash fantasy that has a great balance of plot, characterization, world-building, and emotion, this is not a podcast to miss. Unquote. Thank you, Sarah iTunes reviews and ratings help to bump up the show in the rankings at the iTunes podcast store. That helps new listeners discover the show. If you've got a few minutes to spare, follow the link in the show notes and write me a review, or even just give the show a rating. Your word of mouth is how this show will find its fan base. And now, an extra special thanks to my Patreon patrons for September. Geekery Maid, Barbara, Curtis, Kyle... Stephen, Paige, Abigail, Sheila, Rosemary, Dan, Cunham, Alan, and Scott. Thanks to you, lovely folks, I was able to obtain cover art for To Walk in Shadow, and that ebook will be going up for sale before the end of September. I was also able to pay my web hosting and Google storage fees for this month. Thank you again for helping to make this show possible. Remember, Patreon patrons who donate at least $3 per month get early access to story previews, cover art, author commentaries, and other cool stuff. You can sign up today at www.patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. If you'd like to share your feedback on the show, send your comments in text or mp3 audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail. Just dial area code 641 715 3900 and then enter extension 255082 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook author page is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. My Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook page or the Metamore City discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more words fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The theme music for The Three Graces is A Girl Alone by Hungry Lucy. It was made available for use through Mevio's Music Alley, the Podsafe Music Network. For more of Hungry Lucy's music, visit their website at HungryLucy.com. The contents of this show are copyright 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.